Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. In a few days, Britain will begin the official celebrations of Queen Elizabeth II's Diamond Jubilee, thus commemorating her 60 years on the throne. Hers is the second longest reign in English history, an extraordinary accomplishment rendered all the more impressive given the changes that have occurred within Britain, the Empire, and the world during her reign. Ever focused on duty, the Queen has largely managed to remain aloof from the increasing media speculation that has surrounded her family, and most people know surprisingly little about her beyond the institution that she represents. Today I'm going to be speaking with Sally Bettle-Smith about her new book, Elizabeth the Queen, The Life of a Modern Monarch. Hi, Sally. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography today. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've... um, I've I started out my career as a journalist. I worked for Time Magazine and TV Guide Magazine and the New York Times. What I covered primarily or exclusively really was the broadcasting business. And I left daily journalism uh, in the mid-1980s to begin my work as a biographer, which is what I have done ever since. I have written six biographies since that time. The first one was Bill Paley, the man who built the CBS Broadcasting Network, so it was a story of his life as well as the rise of broadcasting. The next was uh, Pamela Churchill Harriman, who was uh, kind of like a character in a novel, an English woman who um, led a very adventurous and fascinating life in England and the continent and the U.S., and uh, evolved from being a, a very colorful courtesan to being a, a political. Uh, operative in Washington, D.C., and at the end of her life, our ambassador to uh, France. And uh, after that book, I wrote a biography of Diana, Princess of Wales. Uh, I was asked to do that shortly after her death, and um, that uh, came out to two years later. And following that, I wrote... Um, Grace and Power, The Private World of the Kennedy White House, which was a book about John and Jacqueline Kennedy and their circle. And following that, I wrote a, a book about Bill and Hillary Clinton's White House. And uh, now I have, uh, I've just published my, my sixth, which is a biography of Queen Elizabeth II called Elizabeth the Queen, The Life of a Modern Monarch. So you've done a number of books on extremely powerful icons. What drew you to the story of the Queen, and why now? Well, it it was suggested to me, but it took about a second to (laughs) say yes, because I had met her once, uh, about nine months before Random House suggested it to me. I had met her at the British uh, Ambassador's residence in Washington at a garden party when she was on a state visit here and uh, was fortunate enough to be introduced to her. And 
my husband committed two protocol infractions simultaneously. First of all, you're never supposed to ask her a question, and you're certainly not supposed to ask her if she bets at the racetrack. And he proceeded to ask her if she had uh, placed a wager on Street Sense, the winner of the Kentucky Derby, which she had just been to the previous weekend. And um, she very diplomat- diplomatically let that let that slide. But there was something about the way my husband asked the question. I guess she could, he, he actually knows a, a lot about racing and um, knows how to read a race and knows knows what horses are doing when they're on the racetrack, which I certainly don't. And there was something about it. It was fascinating because she kind of just twigged onto it. And the two of them uh, proceeded to kind of replay the entire race between them. And at that moment, uh, quite, quite a few of my preconceptions sort of fell away because what I saw was was her um, a great sparkle? I saw her her smile and her gestures and her twinkling blue eyes. And what I realized later on is that I had had a brief glimpse into what her friends see all the time, um, which is which is um, you know which is a much uh, jollier character than the very um, austere and uh, dignified person, not that she's not dignified, but the very, you know, sort of austere icon that we see in um, public view. So uh, so I was fascinated not only to find out what she does, um, but also to, to to find out what she's really like and, and to describe what she's like as a wife and a mother and a friend and how she was brought up and how she took to power and how she developed as queen over the years. So it was really two two objectives. And, of course, the timing of it was um, I realized three years ago that this was going to be a, a very historic year. It um, marks her 60th year on the throne, and as, is, as a result, she will be celebrating what is called the Diamond Jubilee, there's only been one other monarch in the thousand-year history of the British monarchy to to reach that uh, milestone, and that was her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, who celebrated her Diamond Jubilee back 115 years ago in 1897. So it's a it's a it's a quite a remarkable moment for the Queen and the monarchy. And so the book is coming out is out now. Um, I loved your Princess Diana book. And upon hearing that, that you gained a great deal of cooperation from Buckingham Palace for this book, I was kind of struck that that served to kind of put the palace's stamp of approval on what you'd done with the earlier book. Did you see it in that way, or am I making that well, up? Well, I, nobody explicitly <laughs> said that to me, but when I, when I, um, I, was, I, I spent a lot of time in the U.K., over the years and have a lot of friends. A number of them were very helpful to me in uh, when I was doing my book about, about uh, Diana. And when I embarked on my research for this, I went back to, the, to, a, to a group of them and I asked if they would help, and they very kindly said they would. And they not only introduced me to more people close to the royal family, but they also... Um, Several of them served as advocates um, for me uh, with Buckingham Palace because it's not all that easy. My first um, in- inquiry with the palace was met with a polite, "Well, have a nice, have a nice time, and I hope you enjoy your research." But we really can't help you very much. And fortunately, they they did decide to to do so. And I was told that it had 
uh, you know, it had something to do with the fact that my book was uh, a fair and serious uh, look at Princess Diana's life, and that in the course of it, I had been fair to the royal family and fair to Diana in particular, because it was written at a time when, I mean, excuse me, fair to Charles in particular, and, and as well as Diana, but Charles, back when my book was published, was still being fairly severely criticized um, for the fact that their marriage had fallen apart. So, yes, I think that probably came into play, but they are too discreet to ever have told me that specifically. <laughs> How were they helpful in the course of your research? Well, what they did was really they, once they um, sort of gave my project the green light, that meant that when various people I got in touch with um, called the palace, the palace basically said that they, they had no reason you know that they they were certainly free to talk to me and uh, and they and they introduced me they opened doors to some very key people who were extremely helpful to me and um uh, most importantly they um gave me opportunities to watch the queen and prince philip in a lot of different settings i traveled with them uh in the uk and Overseas, I went on a on a royal what they call a royal overseas tour to uh, Bermuda and Trinidad, and it was just um, great to see the kind of Buckingham Palace machinery on the move and what it takes to put together one of those one of those trips, and also to see really how hard she and he work when they're um, being put through their paces. At the time I traveled with them, they were 83 and 88, and they had very full days of meeting and greeting, and um, I was fairly exhausted just following them. Um, so the palace helped in a lot of different ways. At one point when I was I was um, trying to find out a little bit more about, for example, how Prince Philip uh, developed his role. You know, he got married to the Queen and, in 1947, and then... In 1952, um, her father died. Her father was King George VI, who we all know from the King's speech, and he died quite young at age 56, so she became queen at 25, and her husband really had to carve out a role for himself. He had been a naval officer, and he was an alpha alpha man and alpha male, and and not really accustomed to the notion of um, walking two steps behind her, although he has subsequently said um, that supporting her has been uh, the most important thing he's done in his life. But at the beginning, it wasn't that easy, and I was trying to find out how he how he developed his interests, and um, which turned out to be quite wide-ranging. Um, he, in addition to supporting her, has, over the course of his time, um, the 64 years of their marriage, has, uh, has, has, has developed a, a really impressive portfolio of charities and causes. And, um, and so I, the Buckingham Palace gave me a couple of books of speeches that he'd written in the late 40s and early 50s. And it, and it really was um, an eye-opener to see, and he wrote them all. He always has written his speeches, and um, everything from promote promotion of technology and science to physical fitness, um, 
and uh, you know, just a, a, a ornithology, you know, just the kind of things that you wouldn't expect him to be involved in. And um, he was quite ahead of the time in in terms of his promotion of conservation and the environment. He was he was talking about preserving the Amazon rainforest decades before his son Prince Charles was. So those kind that kind of thing was very helpful. Your book also provides a very interesting look at how vital a role the Queen's religion has played in her life. And this hasn't come up too much in the earlier biographies. Can you talk a bit about it? Well it was it was fascinating to me because <clears throat> for the Queen religion, she's the supreme governor of the Church of England. That's one of her that is one of her official roles. But um with her uh, her faith is 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 very deeply felt but lightly worn. Uh, I interviewed a number of um, members of the clergy, ranging from Archbishop of former Archbishop of Canterbury George Carey to Scottish um, ministers and and various um, Anglican clerics, and um, and they and they described to me first of all she was she was steeped in um the anglican faith from her childhood her mother taught her the collects and the psalms and the book of common prayer she read bible stories to her when she was a child and george carey the former archbishop of canterbury said that the queen knows her prayer book backwards and forwards um her mother the queen elizabeth the queen mother always prayed on her knees and um although no one is absolutely certain that's what the queen does. The assumption is 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 pretty reasonable that she does that as well. But um, she uh, she views her 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 role. Um, she sort of equates faith and duty, and she doesn't see it as a burden, but as something that uh, George Carey described as as glad service. And he he and others said to me that. Because of her faith, she's able to sort of take anything the world throws at her. Um, another one of her her uh, advisors said to me that she really has no illusions about what can and can be changed in the world, and, and she has sort of an acceptance of the way life deals its cards, which is which is kind of rare and uh it's partly a result of her religious conviction and partly life experience um one thing that emerged for me in the book was was the how committed the queen is to the commonwealth um and the idea of that for our non-british listeners can you explain what the commonwealth is and also why it's of such great importance to the queen well the commonwealth is the um really m- mostly the former british empire uh and it evolved over you know starting in the late 1940s um when when countries that were uh part of the british empire became became republics and they elected democratic presidents although um a lot of them still maintained the queen as their head of state um but there it started out as a group of nine um Britain, obviously Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Pakistan, India, and, and then it grew to you know to almost to, to 54 by the early 21st century. 
and it is a it's not like the united nations necessarily it's a it's a it's a it's a group of countries that kind of operate as a forum for good government for education for economic development to promote human rights and they meet every two years and um and discuss issues of the day and the queen the queen is not an executive in charge of the commonwealth she is the head of the commonwealth so what she does is what she has done over the years is she has used her unique status to work behind the scenes with the leaders of the commonwealth nations particularly when they were facing difficult problems such as apartheid in South Africa and and used her kind of hidden hand as a as a force to push to to prod the um very the countries to um act in the interests of human rights for example and she i think because this this collection of countries and it's a you know it it accounts for I don't know, three quarters of the world's population, um, it, you know, originated as the, as the British Empire. She's very proud of the fact that it, that, that all, that so many of the countries, not all, some of them have been, um, have been ruled by autocrats like, um, like Mugabe in, um, in Zimbabwe. But for the most part, um, you know, they have evolved from empire into, into, um, well-functioning governments, and so she's proud to see the way a lot of these countries that were formerly part of her her father and her grandfather and her great-great-grandmother Queen Victoria's empire um, have, um, you know, have turned out, have turned out quite well. Uh, in the book, the stories where that, that joy that you described, um, the twinkle in her eye come out the most frequently seem to be the ones about her in, interacting with horses. Can you talk about her, the unique relationship that she has with horses? Well, yes, it's been a, it's been a huge, uh, part of her life and it, it is, uh, it's both a passion and a refuge. She learned about uh, horses, breeding horses from from her father when she was growing up, and she learned how to ride when she was three years old. She had to develop equestrian skills for her job. Actually, she had to learn how to ride side saddle for the annual birthday parade and trooping the color, which she did for many years until she had, you know, she finally. Fitted in, in a carriage as opposed to riding side saddle on her horse, and for her it was um, it was a way of developing um, certain interesting character traits, you know, and, and all, besides athleticism, uh, a kind of courage and an ability to keep a cool head in danger, and particularly when she was younger, and um, you know, and and being. Being queen, you have people around you all the time. I mean, she was up there on her horse and riding through the fields and vaulting fences. It was a kind of temporary liberation um, from from all the restrictions that she has in her official life. But she loves breeding her horses and racing them. And she, I, I interviewed many people who work with her, trainers and the people who who run her stud farm and. Uh, 
and her former her former racing managers and um it's it's a world that she where she can be herself for one thing one of one of her friends said horses are, are the greatest levelers in the in the world and and because they are the most important these large somewhat mystifying creatures um but she she has she has encyclopedic knowledge of um of the of 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 all the aspects of of breeding and the the genealogy of all these horses she also loves she's very good at naming she's really um she's good at puzzles and charades and word games and she um loves to come up with kind of fascinating uh combinations uh she i mean one that kind of springs to mind is she she named one of her cults lost marbles and um the mayor was amnesia and the stallion was lord elgin and so it's you know she's she's got that wit about her um but it was um it was really uh one of the most fascinating things i i explored because it you know it it it's there's more much more to it than it appears on the surface um and she is a master of all these details of what it takes for uh you know for for a horse to be um a good runner and um and in the course of learning about this world of hers this equine world i discovered um one of her most interesting friendships which is with um california horse horse whisperer a trainer named um monty roberts and she has become an extremely good friend of his, and of course, their common ground is is um, is their knowledge of horses. But um, she uh, she invites him to Windsor Castle or Sandringham uh, every year, and he's he's a he's a really very close friend. And she gave him one of her honors last year. She's also involved in the equine world in the U.S. as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. With the Derby. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that was another line of inquiry that other biographers haven't particularly been um, interested in, and, and, uh, and that is the relationship with the United States, um, which is uh, far more extensive than I think most people realize. She's been here 11 times, and five of those visits were for private holidays, um, the most time she's ever spent on vacation outside of her own estates. And and four of those, or five of those, well, all five of those took her to Kentucky, where she sent quite a few of her mares over the years uh, to be bred with uh, with stallions. And her first visit to Kentucky was in 1984. She also went to Wyoming because she wanted to spend some time in the mountains. But her visits to Kentucky, again, reflect her comfort in this um, this world of of horses and people who were with her tell me that she is they you know her English people who were with her have said that she's more relaxed when she when she is was on those trips in Kentucky than um that any time they'd ever seen her uh people tended not to call her ma'am or your majesty and um she laughed and and just could really relax with uh, with that group of people. 
And she doesn't wear a helmet when she rides. Why is that? She does not wear a helmet. It's something that has puzzled people for years. And because she is, by nature, quite a cautious person, she's very sensible, she's prudent. And I remember when I started out working on the book, people said, you must find out why she doesn't wear a hard hat. (laughs) And I got to know one of her trainers, Ian Balding, and spent some time at his at his stables in in Berkshire. And so I said, well, why? You know, it just seems so sensible for her to wear a hard hat. I mean, she would race down the race course at Ascot when she was a younger woman, just wearing a headscarf. There's a a joke, actually, um, that one of the staff at Windsor Castle told me that the only thing that comes between the queen and her heir is an Hermes scarf. So I asked... Um, Ian, Ian Balding, I said, well, why? And he said, well, he was out riding with her one day at Windsor Castle, and he said, ma'am, you of all people should wear a hard hat. Why don't you wear one? And she said, you don't understand. You don't have to have your hair done the way I do. <laughs> and, and that wasn't, and, and it wasn't an expression of vanity. What it was was sheer practicality. She knows she has to be ready when she gets off her horse and walks back into Windsor Castle that she she will have to meet somebody. And so it's it's um it, it's kind of a, a simple and practical answer, but uh, nobody had ever explained it until now. <laughs> Um, Prince Philip has been pretty vocal about the fact that he doesn't read the newspapers, and yes. yet the Queen apparently reads them all, and I could not imagine her sitting down with a copy of the Daily Mail. I thought that was a great detail. <laughs> well, she does, because she knows that she needs to understand what people are talking about. She, uh, When she goes to breakfast every morning, they're all laid out for her. The first one she reads is a, is a racing paper, because she wants to keep up with the horses, but she reads, typically, she has at least uh, at hand. She has the the Times and the Telegraph and and several of the tabloids, including the Daily Mail, which has a large female readership that that follows the monarchy closely, and the Queen is aware of that. Um, over the years, there have been rumors about Prince Philip's infidelity, and you doubt those. Why is that? Well, I doubt I doubt the rumors mainly because there's been no evidence, but also people close to Philip and and the Queen have, have uh, I, I talked to them about it, and um, and they said that there, I mean, there are, obviously, you know, he's a, he was, and even at age 90, still is, a, you know, a very um, dashing man. And he likes, you know, he likes to flirt or, use, you know, he's always, he was even flirting, I think, with Pippa on the balcony at the wedding last year. And and that was often misinterpreted, I think. But one of their, one of their cousins, um, Patricia Mountbatten, said that, uh, you know, he, he, he wouldn't, he he was so devoted to her. Has always been so devoted to her that he 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 wouldn't do anything to hurt her like that, and that obviously would hurt her. And um, so various you know friends and people close to them have um, have just said that it that it simply isn't 
isn't true. And uh, you know, there have been a list of names of various women that women that has been tossed out there. But um, but there was there's really no evidence. And I know I'm not the only biographer who's made inquiries, and 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 nothing has uh, nothing has confirmed that. In 2002, the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret passed away about six weeks apart. Yeah. Uh, how has the Queen changed since then? Well, there are there's there are quite a few people who think that she's. Um, I mean, it was it was really one of the you know saddest times of her life. Within the space of six weeks, she lost two of the people who were closest to her, um, who've known her her whole life, obviously, and she talked to the Queen Mother and her sister on the phone virtually every day. Um, their deaths co- coincided with her golden jubilee, and she, um, in typical style, kept on and carried on. And, but one change that, um, in particular, was, I think, um, her mother, the queen mother, was the sort of merry widow for... 50 years. She was always smiling. She, uh, because she, you know, she didn't have the responsibilities that her daughter had. She um, had, you know, he had, she had the latitude to be, um, you know, to be a little bit more uh, kind of open and, and uh, amusing in, in her public, in her public persona. And she was also the beloved grandmother figure. And when she died, that love was transferred to um, to her daughter. Uh, there was a very, very poignant moment after the queen mother's body was taken to Westminster Hall for to the lying in state, and the queen and Prince Philip and her family went there for a very short service and. As they left in their car, there were huge crowds of people. And suddenly, spontaneously, the crowd started clapping. And this is, hadn't ever happened before. And they were, they were in that moment sort of transferring their affection over to the queen. She had always been admired. She'd always been respected. But at, she really, uh, became the kind of national grandmother at, at that moment. And friends that I talked to said that she, after obviously the period of mourning, she, they felt that she tended to smile more in, in public and was interested in doing, um, not different kinds of things, but she, she, um, I, I called it a sort of royal bucket list that she was going through. I mean, do, doing things like uh, taking the train when she when when she left for her annual Christmas break, taking the regular passenger train as opposed to the royal train, and uh, and there was just um, a kind of a lightness that people saw in her. Um, that hadn't been quite as evident. Having your, you know, she was extremely devoted to her mother, and and but it's not many people who who um, whose one of whose whose parents live until you're 75, and that's how old the the queen was when her mother died. And so, you know, she was more suddenly she was more on her own, and um, and people said that it did did have did seem to, to have an effect on her. 
In recent years, the palace has made a concerted effort to modernize. And I think this is one of the really interesting parts of the book is that you delve into this, the, the palace as a, as a business and how they've, they've changed. Um, and you have a fascinating passage on the Marmite theory of monarchy. Yes. Can you talk a bit about what they've done to modernize? Well, they've always tried to keep pace with change. And, uh, I think it's safe to say that, that that somewhat accelerated after the death of Princess Diana. And during that very moving speech that the Queen gave the night before Diana's death, she said there are lessons to be learned from the way Diana lived and and her and her death. And after um in the in the year after Diana's death, the palace did something unusual. They um for the first time hired a very prestigious pollster, because they were very concerned that the perception was that they were out of touch. So they hired a pollster, and and he um, uh, conducted surveys to find out, you know, what people thought of the monarchy. And um, and they they could see areas where they needed to to improve to show that they were in touch. But the private secretary at the time, a man named Robin Janvrin, um, developed what he called the Marmite theory of the monarchy. And it's based on the very familiar and popular food called Marmite that has a distinctive green and yellow and red label. And you look at a Marmite label now and you think, that's the same Marmite label it's always been. But if you go back and you look at the Marmite label 50 years ago, you'll see that it's actually quite different, but that the changes have been incremental over time. And that, uh, to him and to others who work for the Queen, uh, has sort of been the model. They want, they want to change. They want to move with the times, but they want to do it incrementally and not too visibly. There was a moment around that time when they took the Queen to McDonald's, and one of the tabloids took a photograph of the royal limousine out underneath the McDonald's sign. And it was, um, they realized that this, first of all, you know, an unfortunate juxtaposition, but also that this might have been just pushing the queen a little bit too far. You know, she, one of the, one of the, um, one of the things that the queen has always had to be aware of um, was keeping a delicate balance. If she if she seems too mysterious and distant, she she kind of loses her connection to her subjects. But if she seems too much like everyone else, she loses her mystique. So she has adjusted in interesting ways. Ten years ago, fifteen years ago, she might have visited a school and stood in the door doorway and looked in the room. Now she's more likely to come in and sit down and talk to the children and, um, you know, be in closer contact with them. Looking back on her reign so far, what do you see as the Queen's legacy? Well, I think her legacy is the way she has led. The example she has um, uh, set, she is... um, and and the fact that she has modernized the monarchy, I think that's been very important. But um, a lot of what she's done is, you know, is known to all the people who've had their confidential audiences with her. Um, I think she's kept she's kept the Commonwealth. 
together when it almost fractured. That's a very important part. Um, she has, but she has, um, through her behavior, she has sort of lived according to the values that she represents. And she has also been a unifying force um, above politics. Uh, she, it's no accident that since they first started taking uh, kind of popularity polls, if you were, back in 1969, she's had um, an 80% approval rating. She's been very careful to remain neutral, to remain above politics, and to be a unifying force for a country. Now, Britain is very different from a from the way it was back in 1952, it's um, when she took the throne. It's um, you know, it's a multicultural society, and she has um, taken symbolic steps to show her recognition of that. When she had her golden jubilee back ten years ago, she went into a mosque for the first time, and she visited a Hindu temple, and um, you know, she she showed. Um, she showed her appreciation of these aspects of um, British society that have that have changed. So it's a kind of multi-layered legacy that she leaves, but it's um, it's it's mostly that she has um, you know she has influenced wisely, and she is also led by an example that um, is hard for other people to match. To end on a lighthearted note. Uh, the Queen's purse gets a lot of attention. What's in there? <laughs> oh, the handbag. Well, I have three eyewitnesses, and uh, the most the most unlikely one was um, was the um, manager of the whole city football team, who sat next to her at uh, luncheon that I attended, and I was watching them talk, and they were having a very animated conversation. And I spoke to him afterwards, and and I said. Um, so did you get a look in her in her in her handbag? And he said, "Yes, I got a very good look." And he said, "Well, you know, it's sort of like sort of like what you'd expect. It had um, sweetener for her uh, coffee. It had uh, handkerchiefs. It had um, uh, glasses. It, you know, it had a coin purse. Um, and so it's, there's nothing kind of mysterious about it. One, of, but there is." Lipstick, makeup, those kinds of, you know, those kinds of items. I, and one of her ladies in waiting said to me, you know, you have to remember that she is a very practical woman. And the reason she always has her handbag with her is that she doesn't want to be without those kinds of things. She wants to have, uh, um, you know, a Kleenex or a comb and she always, always has a reading glasses or, uh, and, but she needs these practical items close at hand. She can't just rely on having a lady in waiting carry them. The most interesting item in her bag um, has been as a bag hook. And um, I spoke to somebody who had been at a dinner party with her at one of the Queen's cousins' houses, and she watched transfixed as the Queen reached into her handbag and pulled out this little suction cup and actually discreetly spat into it and then took it and attached it to the bottom of the table and on on this little suction cup was a hook and she put her handbag on it so another evident another example of her practicality she also has the um uh somewhat i don't know people might say unexpected habit after 
after meals of applying her lipstick in public. And people are always surprised when they see that. Um, I, I spoke to somebody who'd been at a, a ladies' lunch in Washington with, uh, with Laura Bush, who did the same thing after lunch. And, um, and she turned and she said to the person next to her, it's all right, I'm allowed to do this. The queen told me it was fine to do. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Elizabeth the Queen, The Life of a Modern Monarch. I know it's a horrible question to ask an author when their book has only just come out, but do you have any idea what you're going to be writing about next? Not just yet. Not just yet. Uh, I have a little work to do on on um, on this book and getting the word out, but I'm talking about a couple of different ideas. The Queen's a tough act to follow. Um, she was fascinating to write about. And also, I have to say, an incredibly admirable person and um, I found as hard as these books are to write and the thousands of hours they take a lot of it in um, in solitary um, that that she was really quite inspiring to write about the more I learned about her the more there was to admire that's a great book it was really a joy to read thank, thank you so you. much I've been speaking today with Sally Bettles-Smith about her new book entitled Elizabeth the Queen, The Life of the Modern Monarch, which is now out in hardback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.